All right, let me start with first inviting you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. And as you're turning over there, I will remind you briefly. Uh, we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke, not just the whole Gospel of Luke, but the middle section of Luke starts in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. But according to Luke's Gospel, he doesn't arrive in Jerusalem until Luke chapter 19. That's where we're at. That's the on, to, on the road, on the way, on the road to Jerusalem section in Luke. He's on his way to the cross. Many of the parables and teachings and stories that take place in between are unique to Luke's Gospel only. And that's what we're using as a guide for this sermon series. And today, we find ourselves in Luke 15. If you know anything about Luke chapter 15, there are three parables that dominate the chapter. They're all lost and found parables. It's about something valuable that was lost, searched for, and found. And when it was found, there was a celebration. Probably the most well-known parable maybe that Jesus ever taught is in this chapter. The second half of the chapter is the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the lost son. For today's purposes, I'm not going to try to cover that parable in any kind of detail. I'm going to save that for Aaron Partlow, our youth minister. Uh, he's going to preach for me on March 6th. I'm going to guest speak somewhere else. He's going to preach. So I wanted to give the youth minister the easy text, the, the parable that's uh, really well known and, and great. It's very formative for who we are. So we'll cover that in a few weeks. Today we're going to look at Luke 15, uh, 1 through 10. And the big question I want to start with is if these parables are so formative for who we are as a church and as a people, what motivates Jesus to teach these parables in the first place? Why does Jesus share these parables? Well, we begin in Luke 15, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Him. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. A few weeks ago, we looked at Luke chapter 14, and I told you then that the table in the Gospel of Luke is a very important scene. A lot of Gospel moments take place at the table, table fellowship. Luke, as one commentator said, is almost obsessed with mealtime stories. There's at least ten different times where Jesus sits down at a table to eat with a group of people. Jesus uses the table to start a revolution. It's at the table that He forgives people. It's at the table that He heals the sick. It's at the table that He welcomes and creates an inclusive society. But it's also at the table that He confronts religious leaders. And He's not afraid to have hard conversations. All of this in the Gospel of Luke takes place at a table with food. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that in the first century... You are who you eat with. If you choose to share a lunch or a dinner, share the table with somebody, you are expressing to the world around you that you associate with that person. You identify with that person. You accept them. And so there's this problem here that Jesus is eating with the wrong people according to the religious leaders. So this is a picture of the Valley of Dry Bones. It's inspired by Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, I wanted to just share this little thought with you. One of the most formative summers of my life came in 2008. 
Uh, I interned at a, with a ministry called Dry Bones Denver, and if you've been a part of this church for five years, you've heard me talk about Dry Bones many different times. And I do that because... I can't help but do that because my experience with this ministry and my ongoing relationship with this ministry in downtown Denver and the ministers there, the missionaries that serve there, uh, it's really profoundly shaped my philosophy of ministry. So when I read chapters like Luke 15, I can't help but think about my summer serving with Dry Bones Denver. One of the things that we did every week, at least, was we had a picnic with some of the street kids, because the ministry is reaching out to street kids, teenagers, young adults who are living a life on the streets. The city of Denver was trying to reduce the amount of panhandlers, people asking for money, asking for spare change around their streets. So one of the ways of trying to basically get rid of the homeless population was they made it really hard legally for ministries or people to feed the homeless. They created all kinds of laws and restrictions. So our way around that, we weren't going to line them up like we're sending them through a soup kitchen, but our way around that, those laws and restrictions was to eat with them. We weren't feeding them, so to speak, because we were eating with them. So we had a picnic. We would bring sandwich bread and meat, cheese, anything to go on a sandwich, chips, cookies, drinks, a good old-fashioned all-American picnic, nice and healthy, right? And we would show up. And we would invite the street kids to a certain place at a certain time, downtown Denver, right under all the skyscrapers and thousands of people walking all over the place, and we would make them sandwiches. But we would make ourselves sandwiches. And we would just sit down at a picnic table or a grassy area or the sidewalk, and we would kind of intersect and mingle with these our friends on the streets and just share a meal with them. Now, of course... This idea is inspired by Jesus because we see it throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus shared a meal with the strangest type of people, with outsiders. And it's by doing that that you can break down barriers and you can have meaningful conversations and you can show people the love of God and build relationships through doing that. But what I noticed was that every time we did this, hundreds of people would walk past us. Now, most of the time, they wouldn't even notice us. But occasionally, somebody who was walking to and from work might make eye contact with me or someone else, and they would look at us like we were crazy or weird, as if their face was saying, what are you doing eating with these people? So I thought of that as I was reading Luke 15, 1 and 2. These Pharisees, these scribes are grumbling at Jesus because of who He is eating with. And one question that I have, and you may have as well, is why does it bother them so much who Jesus eats with? Why was it such a big deal to the religious leaders that Jesus would eat with these tax collectors and sinners? Well, one way of trying to understand that is to think psychologically. There's a psychology professor named Richard Beck who wrote this book, as you see on the screen here, called Unclean. Uh, And in this book, he gives a compelling argument from a psychologist's perspective, of why this bothered the religious leaders so much. And he shares an experiment that they sometimes will do on subjects, willing subjects, people that are willing to be experimented on. And one of those experiments is called the Dixie Cup Test. It's real simple. You get somebody who is willing to be a part of this experiment. They receive a Dixie Cup filled with water, nice cold water. They take a sip of that water, 
and, you know, confirm, good water, tastes good. And then they would tell you to slosh around as much saliva in your mouth as possible and spit in the cup. Just like hawk a big loogie in the cup. Sounds gross, doesn't it? Step three was, now take another sip. What would you do? Well, according to the study, most people say, no thank you. I took the first sip, but I am not drinking that because it's got spit in it. But the psychologist would say, yeah, but it, it came from you. It was in your mouth just a moment ago, and it didn't bother you, did it? When it was inside of your mouth, but now that it's come outside of you, all of a sudden you don't want anything to do with it. This test uh, reveals what they would call disgust psychology. We all have disgust triggers, and it depends on what culture you live in. We have different disgust triggers. But there are certain things that we just think are nasty, that make us have that disgusting feeling. And if there's something that's disgusting, we try to expel it away from us. We create boundaries to protect ourselves from whatever it is that we think is disgusting. We view it as contaminated, and there's a law of permanence, which means once contaminated, always contaminated. Disgust psychology. Another test they would do is the juice cup test where they would get a cup of juice, put a bug in it, ask you to take a sip. Obviously, you wouldn't do that. They would take the bug out, filter the water or filter the juice, then boil it, filter it again, cool it back down and ask you to take a sip. Would you do it? Well, most of them, according to the study, say, no, thank you. The bug has been in it. I know it's been filtered. I know it's been boiled and filtered again. But that bug was in that juice, and once it's contaminated, it's always contaminated. Once polluted, always polluted. Now, this can be a good thing when we have our disgust triggers kick in and protect us from something that could be harmful, whether it's you know, something we would eat or drink that we don't need to be, and disgust triggers tell us, no, stay away from that. But it's a bad thing when we treat human beings with disgust. And this, according to Richard Beck, from a psychologist's perspective, is what the religious leaders had done with the outsiders, whether it's tax collectors and sinners or those who had diseases or lepers or you name it, they, their disgust triggers kicked in towards other human beings and they viewed them as disgusting and they had contaminated, or viewed them as contaminated and once contaminated, always contaminated and they viewed sinners, tax collectors, lepers, you name it, as contagious. So that's why when Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors, they're thinking, what is he doing? They're contagious. They're going to they're gonna get their filth on him. He's supposed to be a teacher of the, God, the law of, of Moses, you know, God's law. Why would he eat with them? In their minds, they're trying to be pure and holy. And in order to increase their holiness, they had to quarantine themselves away from sinners. Pharisees and religious leaders back then were quarantining well before COVID. They quarantined themselves away from sinners. And then Jesus just comes in, breaks down all these barriers, and shares a table with sinners and tax collectors. So what motivates Jesus to teach the parables we're about to read? All of that I just described to you. They're grumbling at him for who he is eating with. And what Jesus is about to do is he's going to offer for them an argument of what is a person worth? What is a soul worth to you? What is a person worth to God? He tells these two parables we'll read. One is Luke 15, verse 3 through 7. We know it is the parable of the lost sheep. 
Jesus told them this parable. Suppose someone among you had 100 sheep and lost one of them. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he is thrilled and places it on his shoulders. When he arrives home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Celebrate with me, because I've found my lost sheep. But then look at verse 7. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. I think the, the point, you know, is, is there, right? Point taken. Why does Jesus eat with them? Well, He tells this parable. Maybe they get it, but repetition is a great teacher. So instead of just stopping at one parable, He tells another parable. We know this one as the parable of the lost coin in verse 8 through 10. Or what woman, if she owns ten silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Celebrate with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. Two parables I just read to you that are basically the same thing. It's, they're just different ways of saying the same thing. It's the same point, same outline, same structure. Something very valuable is lost. If you want to make the parables personal, think of something in your own life that is incredibly valuable to you. What would you do if you lost it? To a shepherd, the sheep and his flock, his herd, is so valuable to him it's his income, it's his livelihood. If one sheep goes missing, he's going to go find it. For this woman, she has 10 coins, she loses one of them. It may not sound like a whole lot. I read this to my daughter last night as I was putting her to bed, and she was like, why, why does she care so much about one coin? And I was like, it was different back then. And, and that one coin held a lot of value. And it could have been her life savings. It could have been what she had for her family. So something valuable is lost, and they search for it. The shepherd will go over the mountains, through the valleys, wherever to find that lost sheep. This woman will sweep her house clean, turn on lamps, because it would have been dark in those early, early oriental houses and maybe it could have fallen in a crack somewhere. So she'll take the furniture out of the house. She'll do whatever she can to find that lost coin. They search for it. And when they find it, they celebrate. Right? There's rejoicing. They invite neighbors and friends to come rejoice with them. But not only that, Jesus tells us the deeper meaning behind the parable is that there is joy and rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, over one sinner who changes hearts and lives. One of the key words that you see in this parable is the word lost. I want to key in on that for a second. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. How would you define somebody that is lost? Well, Luke and the Gospels, they don't really just flat out say, here's a definition of somebody who's lost. So we're kind of left to assume that maybe, according to the Gospel of Luke, somebody who's lost, they're in that outsider group. They're the, you know, the sinners, the tax collectors, the people that the religious leaders have quarantined themselves away from. If I were to ask you to find somebody or tell me what it means to be lost from Christ. 
You might say, well, somebody that's not a believer, somebody that hasn't been baptized, maybe somebody that's strayed away from the church. We have many different ways of explaining the same thing. But as I was thinking about a definition of lost, I thought about uh, the Four Fields disciple training that Doc Turk and Rodney Britt put on for us or trained us in back in December. And when they were challenging us to make a relational map, if you went to that training, they said, think of somebody who is far from God. It's kind of broad but simple, and I like that, and I feel like that's probably a pretty good description of what Jesus means by somebody who is lost, somebody who is far from God. You could probably think of people in your own life that that might describe them, far from God. So look at these two parables, and how do you read it? How do you view it? Are you the one doing the searching, like the shepherd and the woman? Or do you view yourself, possibly, as the one being searched for? It's kind of like two sides of the same coin looking at this parable. So let's look at the the one side of maybe you're the one doing the searching. As a church, this this should give us our mission, right? Jesus said... In Luke 19 and 10, later in Luke's gospel, when he's at Zacchaeus' house, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's what he came to do. If we're Christ's people, we should be seeking the lost, seeking those who are far from God. So I was a part of a men's group for many years, small group, intentionally small. At the beginning, each week, we would share prayer requests. And we could be very personal with our prayer requests. And there was one guy that was in our group that every week, without fail, he said, pray for my brother who's lost. Every week, his brother was on his heart, and that was a part of our prayer, is that his lost brother would find the Lord. That's where his heart was. He had other things going on in his life, but he never stopped thinking about his lost brother. And I think that's a pretty good example or maybe even metaphor of how we should be as a church. That's our mission. Never stop thinking about, forgetting about, praying for, and reaching out for those who are lost. Now, a question came up, I think it was in our staff meeting a few weeks ago, as a church here or as churches in general, do we care more about the 99 who are safe and in the sheep pen, or do we care more about the one who is lost? Well, if you're a critic of the church, you might say, Well, churches normally care more about the 99. They pay way more attention and energy into that. But I would say that Jesus did both simultaneously. He cared deeply for the sheep who were safe and secure in the sheep pen, and He continued to disciple His disciples and care for those who weren't lost. But Jesus also cared deeply for that one sheep who was lost. That's why He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. That was his mission. That should be our mission as well. But another way of looking at this parable is what if we don't just all of a sudden assume we're the ones doing the searching, but what if we are being searched for? How would that change your perspective to think about God pursuing you? If the shepherd or the woman you know, and the father later in the parable of the prodigal son represent God's love for us and Him searching for us and pursuing us, how does that make you feel to think maybe God is searching for you? I read the story a few years ago about a group of tourists who traveled to Iceland and traveled around the country on this bus, had a tour guide, you know, it was kind of a fun trip, maybe a one-week trip, something like that, and they made one stop one day at a volcanic canyon. 
Uh, they got out for a few hours to go take pictures, explore, hike around, and there was a certain time they were supposed to meet back on the bus. But they had been together for long enough that the tour guide wasn't just counting numbers, he was counting faces and names. So he stood at the door, and as they walked back on the bus, if he recognized your face, he would mark your name off. One person didn't show back up. So he started to get a little worried, told the bus driver, we're waiting right here until she shows back up. One hour goes by, she's nowhere to be seen, so the tour guide calls the police, the police show up, he files a missing persons report, and for the next 12 hours, they searched for her. People that were on the bus got off the bus and they searched, the police searched, they even had a helicopter flying around searching for her, until they eventually discovered after 12 hours that she had been with them the whole time. You see, this lady went to the restroom before she got back on the bus. She changed clothes, she freshened up, she put on makeup, and when she got on the bus, the tour guide didn't recognize her. So he thought she was missing, but the, the thing that I really like about the story is she was a part of the search party. She was searching for herself. She did not know until about 12 hours into it, she's the person who's lost, which is kind of amazing, maybe a relief to him, but she was lost and didn't know it. So let that sink in for just a moment. Like, sit with that. Could it be, possibly, that me or you, maybe we are that sheep or that coin? Maybe we've drifted from God. Maybe we are far from God. Or it could be something like you look in that depth and you think, I'm, I am far from God in my devotional life, or I am far from God in my relationships, or I am far from God in the secret sins in my life. Maybe being far from God might describe me or you. So how does that make you feel as you read the parable? Yes, it inspires our mission, but what does it do for us as we think about our relationship with God? What about being at the table? What if Jesus wants to come in and eat with us? This past summer, we looked at the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia that we find in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And the letter to the church in Laodicea is a harsh one. Jesus tells this church, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, and because of that, I want to spit you out of my mouth. And most of the time we stop there, but if you keep reading in that letter, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus says, listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. What a, an image that Jesus gives in this letter that's often been depicted and portrayed and painted and drawn, whatever, people trying to get this image of Jesus standing at the door knocking. Why would Jesus be standing at the door and knocking to get into a church that's supposed to be a church in His name? Maybe it's because through their apathy, through their lukewarmness, however you want to interpret that, they've slowly pushed Jesus out. They've become far from God. But He doesn't give up on them. He's still standing at the door knocking. He's saying, if you just let me in, I will come in. I will sit at the table and I will eat with you. So if being far from God might describe you, then I guess the invitation would be to come home. If being far from God describes you, the invitation would be to let Jesus in or let Jesus back in to come and eat with you. We're told in these parables there is going to be joy and celebration in heaven over somebody who repents, over somebody who comes home, over somebody who is found and changes their hearts and lives. 
And if that's you today, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, if you just need to come back to the Lord, let us help you with that. You can come forward. You can do that while we stand and sing. I need thee every hour.